0: Welcome to the One Nation podcast. One Nation Party USA is a national political party in service to your freedom, personal capacities, dignity, and stewardship of our land and future. One Nation believes that the time has come to transcend our polarized politics and begin the process of upgrading our systems on behalf of creating a thriving future for all life on earth. In this first series of episodes on the One Nation podcast, we'll be exploring some key orienting ideas of the party. To do this, we'll be joined in conversation by Christopher Life, one of the initiators of One Nation. Like what you hear? Consider becoming a member of One Nation by going to www.onenation.party, or by finding us on Facebook at One Nation Party USA. Disagree with what you hear? Reach out to us and share your perspective. Unlike other political parties, we see disagreement as a doorway to deeper understanding, and we welcome your feedback. You can reach us at participate at onenation.party. One of the most common concerns that we hear about One Nation is the potential that we could create a spoiler effect on the presidential election. On this episode, we're going to respond directly to this common concern. But before we do that, I want to offer a little bit of background on what exactly the spoiler effect is. So the spoiler effect is what is what 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 is a kind of the name of this effect of the vote splitting between candidates who often have similar ideologies. So a spoiler candidate's presence in an election draws votes from a major candidate with similar politics, thereby causing a, an opponent of both to win. Uh, the minor candidate causing this effect is, is referred to as a spoiler. And the most famous example of this effect in play is in the 2001 U.S. presidential election, where often it is argued that Ralph Nader spoiled the election for Al Gore, causing Al Gore to lose the election, lose the state of Florida and the presidential election to George Bush. Often uh, the spoiler effect is used as an argument against non-duopoly party candidates running in elections. And so we, we hear this concern all the time. And uh, I'm curious, Christopher, before we kind of get into our response, if there's anything you would add in summarizing what the spoiler effect is, uh, anything, anything that comes to mind for you as we set this up?
1: I think you did a great job uh, depicting it from the traditional sense of the term. And I look forward to exploring that a bit deeper in this episode.
0: Right on. Cool. So, you know, uh, you and I have both had this experience of people sort of hearing about One Nation, particularly after they, um, you know, as we talked about in a a recent episode, hear about our ambitions for the 2020 election. And they quickly, the topic of spoiling the election comes up. And um, uh, maybe you can paint a little bit uh, that concern, how you typically hear it expressed, and then we can get into the response.
1: Yeah, great. Well, there's a couple um, assumptions or premises that this inquiry usually comes from, and um, I'll, I'll start there, and we'll, we'll we'll unpack them. One of the assumptions and premise premises is a um, is a is an assumption that one nation is. Um, Primarily focused on um, on uh, attaining votes from the historically progressive side of the spectrum. So that that that's an assumption. That's not our strategy by any means. And so, in that assumption, there's there's the the follow-up assumption that um, those that would vote for a Democratic candidate that would oppose Donald Trump in 2020 um, would be uh, attracted to our conversation and therefore not vote for that Democratic candidate. So that's that's kind of typically, I don't hear the spoiler effect coming from the historic right or the conservative. So it, it's, it's always predominantly in the focus uh, in relationship to the Democratic uh, candidate for 2020. And inherent in that, is um, is an assumption that the Democratic Party can do a better job of governing the country and caring for the citizens and caring for the ecology than the Republican Party can. And so if a person has those two assumptions that we are gonna take votes away from the Democratic candidate, and the Democratic candidate would do a better job of running the country than the Republican candidate, then I wouldn't fault them for coming to that conclusion and having that concern. Um, so that's that's the that's the typical premise that I feel like most people um, bring forward when they ask that question.
0: Great, and so um, maybe we can then just go through both of those. Premises and, and respond to them one by one, and just sort of s- see where we're at after we respond to them. So that first premise, right? That and this again, we refer to the definition of the spoiler effect. That the, the the spoiler effect comes into play when an ideologically or politically similar candidate appears on the ticket. Again, in this example, like Ralph Nader, sort of quote unquote, stole votes from Al Gore because people who would have voted for Al Gore, you know, uh, but were more progressive than Al Gore is willing to be, uh, instead voted for Ralph Nader, therefore sucking votes away from Al Gore. And so um, people come into this conversation by, by, by imagining that One Nation is ideologically kind of similar to Democrats, maybe like we're a more progressive version of the Democrats or something like that. So how do you typically respond to that how do you how do you kind of refute that or respond to that assumption that premise
1: well uh as you may have heard in other uh episodes one nation is committed to um asking some uh questions that aren't uh typically asked in the public narrative around the what we call the historical ideological spectrum. So this whole notion that there's a left and there's a right, um, that these there's different buckets, right? So you can be you can be left and that means liberal, and you can be far left and that means progressive, and you can be right and that means conservative, or you can be far right, and that can mean other things. And when when we're plotted that way, then it inherently makes us divisive and it basically positions us to believe that my values, my worldview, the way that I would like the world to be is in tension or diametric opposition to the way that somebody else wants it to be. So we are fighting each other, red versus blue, more conservative agenda, more liberal or progressive agenda. And as a follow-up point, if you follow that that left as it's traditionally plotted in the ideological spectrum, then what you get beyond uh, liberal is typically referred to as socialist, right? More, more socialist oriented agenda, which just creates a greater polarity or greater distinction from more of a free market capitalist kind of approach. And one nation does not plot itself anywhere. On that spectrum, one nation sits at what we call a superposition from that spectrum. It means it's fundamentally not in that territory. Like most people are actually fundamentally not like in that territory. It would you'd be hard pressed to find one person that perfectly plots themselves according to the narrative in that bucket in any one place on that spectrum. You know, I've used the example before. Many, many people say, oh, I'm a fiscal conservative, but I'm a social liberal. Um, I don't want to spend money unnecessarily, but I want people to be able to make their own personal choice they want to make. And you kind of draw this out of more and more people and you realize that like these buckets are mental constructs. They're not actual ways of mapping the values of Americans. If you try to actually map the values of Americans... Um, it would be an incredibly complex task that would look kind of more like buckshot than it would look like a clean line. So whenever we reduce something from reality to a model of reality, then we, we, we abstract and we get further away from how reality actually is. And so with one nation sitting at a superposition from this ideological divide, what we invite people into is to a a paradigm of politics that transcends or rises above the us versus them mentality. And it just so happens that there's people plotted all along that historic ideological spectrum because that's where they grew up, or that's what their life circumstances or, or education or religion um, helped them to form an identity as being a Republican or being a conservative or being a Democrat or being liberal or being progressive. Um, but at an, at an individual intellectual and spiritual journey of, of, uh, and, a, and, a, and a journey of, of maturation, they, they, and I say when I say they, there's tens of millions of Americans that have come to this conclusion based upon various polling data have desire to rise above us versus them as a fundamental premise for how we do politics. And what's on the other side of us versus them or win-lose is a paradigm we call win-win or integrative, which means that rather than saying it's either going to be this or that, I win, you lose. Our people get what we want. Your people don't get what they want. It's actually a very immature and... Uh, overly simplistic and unnecessarily polarizing way of even talking or creating policy where we're going as we mature is a, um, a win-win conversation, right? You imagine little children fighting over a toy. It's mine. It's mine. That kind of a thing. That's win-lose. And that's the quality of immaturity that American Mm -hmm. politics has. If you, If you think about a very complex issue and you have mature adults sitting around a conversation, uh, sitting around a table to be able to really understand what is this situation, what are the circumstances, what are the implications, and have that conversation, um, that's a a quality of conversation that I can't think of a particular metaphor or example of that, but I think you can imagine a circumstance of really well-intended, thoughtful, mature adults that aren't just going to say, mine, mine, you know, like kids might but actually think something through really well. And one nation is an invitation for people, regardless of where they started on the ideological spectrum to move into a new political paradigm and a new political narrative where we don't say us versus them. I get what I want. You don't get what you want. We say, how do we make sure that we have everyone who needs to be at the table around the table? How do we listen to the different perspectives? How do we integrate those perspectives and how close can we come to a solution that leaves every person feeling like at least to some degree, their voice has been heard and their need has been addressed. So this is possible. This is what we are committed to doing with our platform. And it's really a joy to be able to invite people, which we are currently doing, who have been historically plotted as, as libertarian. To come into one nation and those that have previously been plotted as Republican and Democrat and Green Party to come into a nation where they move beyond the bounds of the specific ideological bucket. And they move into a container that says, you know, here's my perspective as 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 from the from the lineage of the liberal of the Libertarian Party. And how can that be interwoven to your perspective from the lineage of the Green Party? And, and again, as, as a previous episode um, suggests, we've kind of um, identified some core underlying values in each of these different party buckets. So, libertarians are a real stand for personal freedom, and Republicans are a stand for personal responsibility, and Democrats are a stand for equality and dignity, and and those from the Green Party are stand for our, our good stewardship our wise stewardship, our caring stewardship of the commons. Um, and those things are not at all diametrically opposed. They're only opposed if you have a poor quality of conversation. The future that we want to be able to experience and inhabit is a future whereby every single policy does a phenomenal job of reinforcing personal freedom and personal responsibility and and the, the common dignity of all people, as well as being good stewards of our environment and the commons. So when you hear the quote that says, we can't solve any, a problem with the level of intelligence that created it, the level of intelligence that created most of the problems we're dealing with is win-lose intelligence. So we need to move into a win-win intelligence, and that actually apl- uh, affords us the level of sophistication to actually take on the most challenging issues of our day. And so to bring it all the way back to the spoiler effect, despite the fact that we are talking about doing something that hasn't yet been done and birthing a new era of civic engagement, a new era of of politics and governance and humanity in America. And one that we hope like previous eras, of, uh, of, of democracy that, that America was responsible for initiating that, that work that we do to transcend win lose politics can actually transmit and and emanate around the world. So this this is, this is profound and meaningful of a commitment that we're making here and that in that, 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 that movement of consciousness is is that which we're standing for and and i don't believe that that transition in the paradigm of how we run politics will be able to be birthed from either the democrat or the republican party and therefore we feel as though we have a moral imperative to be able to organize politically outside of those contexts and invite every single american regardless of their historic political affiliation who are ready for a more mature experience of politics into one nation. And therefore, it is fundamentally not something that's designed only to stir up some votes from from the right or the left, but both equally. And um, yeah. yeah, I think that, that's a starting point nice. to that conversation.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, uh, I think one thing that we mentioned previously, and you said this at the very beginning of your response to this particular... Premise is that the kind of idea of this left-right polarity um, is a kind of reduction of the complexity of what of the political into two sort of oversimplified perspectives. And, you know, it that it is a construction, and it's a construction that's constructed by kind of the powers that be that use this polarity to keep us from discovering our common ground and creating the win-win conditions. And so, you know, I I think of this uh, common concern as an invitation to really look at like, what are we perhaps as individuals and collectively sort of like perpetuating and constructing by playing or acting as if this is a real polarity? that we want to keep going. So like, what are we willing to settle for? And I think that actually brings us to the second common concern, which is this idea, uh, which is another kind of sub point of the spoiler effect. It's like, you know, um, if you run, uh, you will cause, you know, or, or maybe it's better to kind of act as if I'm the person like, like I, I know that no candidate is perfect, but I'm going to choose to vote for the lesser of two evils because, you know, um, if the other side wins, then it's doomsday or whatever it is, or whatever the kind of sense of it is. Um, You know, uh, how do we, how do you respond to that sense of like, you're going to mess up our attempt to choose the lesser of two evils. Like you're going to let the greater of two evils win if you uh, run the one nation uh, presidential campaign.
1: Yeah. Thank you. So, Let's, let's, um, if, if you're, if you're, if you're coming from the, uh, the traditional right and you're listening to this, just hang on and, uh, and listen through this, it'll be entertained, I promise. And I want to speak specifically to those that are maybe listening from the vantage point of the, uh, the traditional left, as we say, or or, or the liberal side of that spectrum. So if it, if it were true that, um, that the Republican party had a set of values that was fundamentally inferior to the set of values held on the liberal side of that spectrum. And if it were true that these parties were made out of, of, of people with uh, just kind of doing their best to express their values through government, if those things were true, then I would say you know, from, from the side of the left that, that you'd be absolutely warranted in wanting to make sure that somebody that aligned with your values, um, was taking office and that you should be concerned if a, if a party were somehow going to be taking that votes away from that person who you think is, has the best chance of winning that aligns with your values. So that's all fair. However, that's not actually what's going on. And, and I hate to, uh, you know, burst your bubble. If this is the first time you're about to hear what I'm about to say, um, but it's the truth. And it's an important truth that we can really take in as we start to wake up from the paradigms that have been imposed upon us. So what's actually true is that both the Democrat and the Republican Party are fundamentally driven by what we call the corporatocracy, which is kind of a colloquial term. What I mean by that is that there's corporations in various industries and these corporations have one primary objective, which is to generate profits that can be extracted from ecology and society that end up having the shareholders, people that own those companies to be able to become extremely wealthy. And some of these sectors are the the, the biggest sector is the military-industrial complex. Uh, what I mean by that, for those of you who aren't familiar, is that there's thousands, I'm imagining, of companies that make things like bullets and guns and missiles and tanks and boots and fighter jets, and the list goes on and on. <clears throat> and they sell their products to the government so the government can use those products for military activities. Um, another major industry is the uh, healthcare industry and the pharmaceutical industry and the pharmaceutical industry produces products that, um, that they become extremely wealthy when people start to use those products on a regular basis. And there's, um, a deep level of concern that, that many pharmaceuticals don't actually, um, uh, create health positive impacts, but they're designed inherently to manage disease um, so that people just keep having to become dependent upon and use uh, pharmaceuticals you know, for an indefinite period of time. And pharmaceuticals ultimately end up, after chronic use, um, creating new conditions that require new pharmaceuticals to be used. So from a business model, it's, it's absolutely genius. And these pharmaceutical companies, um, they have just unbelievable profits. These are, these are two examples of industries. There's many other industries and these industries um, work within the Republican Party and the Democratic Party equally. Both of the parties are in direct service to the what we call the corporatocracy. Again, that's a that's a casual term, um, but to corporate interests. And um, anybody who thinks that that they could make a case that that's that's not the case, we we invite that. But I uh, I don't think that that's going to be possible to do, um, considering how entrenched these interests are. And so if we have two different political vehicles that fundamentally serve the needs of the corporations, when I say serve the needs of the corporations, I mean, basically allocating government budgets in ways that, um, that provide profits for these corporations or modifying policy that creates an environment that allows various corporations or industries to become more profitable, to have um, greater ability to uh, extract resources from the environment and society in order to ultimately end up in increased private benefit. So since that's the case, what's actually occurred is that these two parties have wedged themselves and entrench themselves systematically. That's why we call it the bipartisan system, because it's actually a system of these two parties in relationship with each other that guarantee that the corporate interests that they serve get their needs met. And that's hidden. That's hidden from the general public. What's um, presented to the general public is character issues, value issues, or, Um, using very polarizing issues like abortion, for example, um, to get the public riled up. And then these two parties give the general public what we call the illusion of choice. So it's an incredibly sophisticated model, right? Because if there was just one dictator, then it would be easy for everybody to point the finger and say, Oh, that, that person, uh, that administration is Serving the interests of the corporations um, and not the interests of the people and our land, but but since the power elite has been so darn effective and really cunning to position these two different vehicles to give America the illusion of choice, and then to provide highly polarizing narratives that, that lead people to fight each other, to entrench the belief that we're so different from each other. Well, now while in a metaphorical sense, maintaining that hegemonic or all powerful entrenched position in government, all of America still has the illusion of choice and still feels like we are actually in a moral battle against each other. This divide and conquer or divide and control are tactics to go back for for uh, thousands of years. So they're very standard empire-based tactics that as empire becomes larger and there's more people, it's harder to be able to main, cont- maintain control over them. So the 101 tactic of empire is make sure that the people are fighting each other and, and, and fuel and fund and even weaponize the different sides so that while they keep fighting each other, the empire itself can go unchecked, so that that's what's actually occurred in America, and um, and so so then we get a get a sit back and ask ourselves, is this true? And we could make a case, and probably should write a very deep paper to um, to present all this. But there's some very simple things that you can look at, right? So if if you think that. Um, if you, if you think that you don't want, uh, war, you think that you, you're, you're, you're morally opposed to war. You don't think that we should be engaged in a war. And then you look at the traditional re- Republican party, uh, the conservatives and you say, okay, they, those, those are the guys that, that like war. Um, but the, the, the liberals are nice and they don't like war. And so, um, I want to vote for liberal cause I don't want to vote for, for warfare and I don't want to vote for violence. But then if you actually look and you actually see that Obama and Hillary Clinton together be the president, and secretary of state, dropped more bombs on people than George Bush, then you start to realize that these assumptions that they would like, they would like for you to believe that there's one party that's more war prone and another party that's not so that we have this tension and going back and forth. But that's not actually what happens. And so it's important for anybody who thinks they are certain that any one party is going to stand for a particular value or a particular social agenda over another, you have to really do your homework and drill in and drill in and drill in um, to be able to see if that's really true. And I think that one person could say like, well, what about healthcare? That's That's pretty obvious that the right definitely doesn't want to provide you know, uh, something like socialized welfare. And, and the left would like to make sure that everyone's got their healthcare issues uh, handled. And it's one of those things where the system itself, the bipartisan system that allows the, the corporate elite to maintain their entrenched positions of power, um, it can actually tolerate incremental change. So there's pressures pressures, pressures that come in from the populace and the system is meeting those pressures. And if the system doesn't give in to those pressures to a certain degree, then it actually um, stands the risk of so much discontentment in America that there becomes mass mobilization, which could ultimately threaten or even take down their illusion of power and control. And so in order to, 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 to mitigate full social, uh, disruption, then they, they, they they give in that, that, that gives society this illusion of progress and ultimate pacification so that the corporate governing elite can continue to do what they're doing. Now, the thing that makes this kind of even more, um, uh, harder to stomach is that in the process of trying to meet these social reform issues, the system usually actually finds ways to flip it on its head and make sure that when that policy transformation occurs, it leads to a benefit of the corporate interests themselves. So we have some expansion of the ability for people to um, receive healthcare and that results in a direct expansion in. The pharmaceutical companies being able to have clients to be able to um, sell their pharmaceuticals to, and have the government be able to pay those companies to be able to have more to increase their pharmaceutical sales. So, I'm not saying that some people wouldn't be benefited by, an, by Obamacare, for example. And I'm sure many people, even listening to this podcast, might have seen some benefit from Obamacare. And so, I'm not, I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's not possible that some change that comes out of bipartisan might not result in a real benefit to a real citizen but if you look below what's going on you'll see that the benefits offered are only enough to keep us from revolting not actual benefits designed to maximize our quality of life and the ecological sustainability of our planet
0: yeah, nice. And so I'll one of the things I'll I'll put in the show notes is a link to this really excellent Freakonomics radio podcast episode about America's hidden duopoly, which really explores this topic in great detail. And I found it to be very persuasive when I listened to it. And so I think, you know, that that lens of analysis is worth exploring for each of us, really to help us sort of see through some of the false narratives and paradigms that are sort of in our culture that we have to look at closely in order to sort to see more clearly. And, 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 you know, the, the other point that I would add on top of this, which is really motivating for me personally is that, you know, incremental change might have been sufficient for periods of time in our history, but we're reaching a time where, where it's just simply not like we have to make, pretty radical changes in order to meet the complex challenges of our time. And we've talked a little bit, we haven't gone into great depth, we talked a little bit about the kind of like existential risk of our current time. And if you look at both Republicans and Democrats, they're just quiet about that because they have so much vested interest in kind of constraining the domain of politics to be about this kind, to be in the terrain of this false polarity and so it you know once you start to open up into a wider world of kind of possibility then you quickly sort of see the impoverishment of what the is on offer as far as like the permissible realm of discourse and political change within the context of the united states and so yeah that, that that feel that point that the second point that you made is actually Uh, since I've been a part of this project, you know, I've been exploring more and, and have found myself to be extremely persuaded by it. It really does feel like, you know, it's not that the system is broken, right, which we often hear, but in fact, that it's working exactly as it's designed to do, which is to maintain and shore up power within this kind of duopoly, which shares power but just among themselves and keeps a kind of status quo alive. Well meeting out, you know, very incremental change. And once you start to see it that way, you see how tenable yeah. this is and how it's, a. It, it, you kind of get, I, I find myself increasingly just kind of repulsed by the whole situation, uh, kind of disgusted.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, so our, our campaign word uh, theme, you might say, I guess, for 2020 is, is rebirth. And as you began sharing, um, you know, there, there might be some people listening to this that are thinking, uh, I'm very concerned about environmental issues. And, and it seems like what Donald Trump is doing is only exacerbating them. And I'm very concerned about social issues. And I feel like what Donald Trump is doing is only exacerbating them. And I'm very concerned about international relations and international violence and the threat of war. And potentially what Donald Trump is doing is exacerbating them. And all of the things that I just mentioned, environment, social issues, international relations, um, these are systemic issues, not issues of one individual person. And what we actually need to do in order to increase the probability that we avoid uh, like a dystopic future at best and, uh, and a future of, of extinction at worst, which you know many people are highly concerned about, um, then we need to undergo a full systemic transformation of exactly what government is, of exactly how we do economics, of how we do infrastructure and energy and transportation and social organizing and how we make decisions and sense making and, and what a nation is and the relationship between nations and how we relate to the oceans that are, that are, you know, going through major processes of transformation that are incredibly concerning. There are these massive, massive systemic issues that need to be taken on. Uh, and if they're not taken on, then, um, every probable, uh, uh, projection is that we, we move to a point where we don't have a future because you know, either and it's not really a matter of what it's, it's just like, which happens first. Like, do we have, you know, massive environmental collapse or do we have rampant, uh, military activity, or do we have, uh, artificial intelligence that's embedded with the same corporate greed, win lose, uh, fundamental program that then actually leads to a destruction of our planet by artificial intelligence that's impregnated with uh, fundamentally pathological and mm-hmm. and uh, and destructive coding, and the list goes on and on. There's 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 so many different ways that this whole thing can go down to hell in a handbasket. I've I've heard a mentor of mine say that we've through artificial intelligence and uh, nuclear power and uh, other uh, technologies. We have the power of gods, but without the morals of gods. And so since we're, with every day that goes by, we have more of the power of gods. With, you know, people can, based upon simple technology, people can innovate their own, um, what could be used as biological warfare with simple equipment that they can buy online and have in their home. So, you know, just a couple of years ago, it would take a state act, a state agent to participate in biological warfare. And now that could be happening, you know, in every, in every basement in America, mm-hmm. if it wanted to be. So we have these powers of gods. And so if we don't have the morals of gods and the systems, and I obviously use the term gods like very loosely, right? It's just a kind of a, a loose reference. Um, if we don't have a, a very mature set of morals, then we will inevitably destroy ourselves as our technology becomes exponentially more powerful. So all of this said is if a a person's fundamental fear or concern with the future of ecology and humanity rests that Trump should not be reelected and that somebody from the left, the blue, the Democratic Party should, then what that person might come to realize is that an election of a democratic president in 2020 would create the illusion that these issues are being addressed. But I can say with 100% certainty that, that the corporate power elite that controls the democratic party and that base and that narrative, um, will not stand for the systemic transformation required to birth that. And how do we know that that's true? Because the word systemic change has never been issued publicly by one Democrat representative that I've ever heard of before. So if we, if we vehemently need systemic transformation, in every aspect of our economy and society in order to be able to create a thriving future. And that concept has never been presented by the party that you affiliate with. You can know for sure that that party is either inadequate or unwilling to do that, which we must do to rebirth humanity and to rebirth our government, such that we can move from a reality that starts to become more and more scary, more and more divisive, more and more concerning, to one where we actually move into fundamentally solving the issues we have, taking advantage of our opportunities, and create a new era for humanity. And so that's why I really invite people to consider that what if this whole notion of a spoiler effect is actually up? opposite. What if we can actually, what if we actually can or must flip that on its head? What if instead of one nation making meaningful progress in the 2020 campaign, that that would be a spoiler to a democratic success? What if a democratic success would actually be the spoiler of the fundamental systemic transformation that our nation needs. And I posit that as a, as a premise to uh, meditate on and contemplate to ask yourself what is the real future that you want to see? What are all the things that you are not content with and that is, are not acceptable to you? And I'm almost certain that if you actually make that list, you will realize that neither of the existing parties is willing or able or have the political will to be able to recreate society so that everything on your list is addressed. And the best that they'll do is pretend that those are the things that you care about and give you little wins, like scraps thrown to a dog under the table while the corporations continue to extract their profits. And by the way, I'm not even making corporations evil. I'm just saying they're doing like you said that what they're doing, what they're designed to do well, which is to extract and maximize profits at all costs. And that is the fundamental premise of corporations legally. They're actually a legal entity designed to maximize profits. And if the CEO isn't maximizing those profits, they can be sued or fired by the shareholders for not fulfilling their fiduciary responsibility. And so the entire system Is extractive in nature and nothing regenerative or win-win where that cares about the whole um, well-being of the individual the family the community the nation and our global environment that can't be born from something that's fundamentally extractive in nature and if our corporations are extractive and if the money from our corporations are driving the two-party system and if the two-party system is putting these two different faces vote for me vote for me then you can realize that whole thing no no systemic transformation can be birthed from that and so i think that we're standing at this time that we're at with this explosion of discontentment with this 26% of americans fundamentally disengaged from the political process with movements on every front and sector erupting. If all of these movements can be brought together and unified, then we will certainly be able to have the, the power and influence and voting capacity to actually create unprecedented outcomes in presidential campaign in 2020, as well as governor, Mayoral, sheriff, you know, electoral outcomes in state and municipal governments as well. So one nation is a full stand for systemic transformation. And every vote for the Democratic Party or for the Republican Party is a vote to continue with an extractive economy, to continue with a win-lose political narrative, to continue... It's a vote to continue fighting each other, regardless of which side of that you vote for. And a vote for one nation is a vote for system change. A vote for one nation is a vote for unity. It's a vote for collaboration and coordination. It's a vote for maturity. It's a vote for a paradigm shift. And it's a vote for rebirthing our nation into a new era and so i'm going to say something that is um pretty probably going to come across as taboo which is my worst case scenario for our nation and for the world is that a democratic elected official is elected as the president in 2020. And I have come to a conclusion that that will be the spoiler effect for the needed systemic transformation of our time. And there's something that Donald Trump is doing that is exacerbating people, that's activating people that that weren't previously politically active to come forward and to engage and to bring their time, their genius, their expertise, and their resources to the table that they previously weren't willing to bring to the table because there was there wasn't the same level of exacerbation that that trump has brought forward and so in 2020 we will either be ready for full systemic transformation we will mobilize the tens of a million millions of americans needed to actually achieve that outcome or we as a country won't be ready yet and we'll need another four years of getting very, very upset and very concerned and very activated and build that energy further. And then in the 2024 election cycle to blow out the entrenched win-lose bipartisan system that is going to give way my question is just is it going to give way in 2020 or fully give way in 2024 either way one nation not only does not provide a risk of a spoiler effect for progress and change in the world it absolutely ensures that we are taking steps forward to aggregate and amass the responsible, mature, and impassioned people in America who are not living in the delusion that just more win-lose incremental change will suffice. And that as that mass grows in the millions and the tens of millions, then we will in fact have the political capacity and of course the political will to, 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 to act in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in an aspect of leadership that the entire world is desperately begging for right now.
0: Great. And if you are, listening to this, and and that was provocative for you, as I imagine it, it it will be or would be for, for many listeners, um, we invite you to reach out and, and correspond with us. Uh, you know, As we've said in other episodes, uh, I see this, we see this very much as the beginning of a conversation. And so by virtue of listening to this, you are invited into that conversation. You're participating in that conversation. And we welcome you uh, to engage with us. And if you'd like to share your thoughts, uh, with us about this conversation or any other conversation or topic, you can email us at, uh, participate at one nation party, or you can find us on Facebook, one nation party USA. Uh, so, uh, thank you, Christopher, anything, any parting words before we, uh, uh end this particular conversation.
1: My parting words are, are similar to to words that I, I believe are spoken on a previous podcast, which is, um, There's this way of seeing things. I guess that's what a paradigm change is, right? It's like, it's, it's changing the way we see things. And so there's this way of seeing things that I think is important for us to see. And it's that right now, the Democrat and the Republican party is, is like, is like one, not two. It's it. And that we, and that it's not actually working for the benefit of the people while providing the illusion that it is. And what we, the people need to do is to realize that it is, has a chokehold on American government and have the waking up from the illusion that it's giving us choice. And the taking down of the chokehold of the two-party system on American government as our highest political priority. That's the, one, the piece I want to leave with you. And I believe that we actually can achieve that outcome with the education, the empowerment, the mass organizing the votes and the energy that we can aggregate in the 2020 campaign and as a listener if this is meaningful to you we would invite you to devote and engage your energy and your time and your focus and your creativity and your community and your networks to increasing the probability that we're able to achieve this intention, uh, in 2020. And that's why we call it rebirth because we want to help to rebirth American government in a new context. that's not controlled by the two-party system.
0: Great. Thank you, Christopher.
1: Thank you, Daniel.
0: Thank you for listening to the One Nation podcast. The One Nation Party is made possible by your support. If you enjoyed this conversation, we invite you to explore membership and volunteer participation in the party by heading to www.onenation.party. That's www.onenation.party.